You may be seated this morning. And as you're being seated, turn in your Bible to Revelation chapter 3. As we continue on this journey of looking at the seven churches in the book of Revelation. And as we kind of gear up for this new year, 2007, and we've been on this journey of Revelation for a few months, sometimes we can lose sight of why we're actually studying the book of Revelation. Why did we even go down this path in the first place? Well, the whole point was seeking God's face, seeking God's will in the area of going deeper with Christ. The issue of revival. The issue of praying that God would would blow His Spirit through our midst this morning and on on every Sunday that we meet, and that God's power would reign in our church. And I said on that very first Sunday when we looked at Revelation and we looked at the seven churches, there's four main attacks that come upon God's church. And we've seen these attacks in various forms and in various fashions when we've looked at the churches up to this point. The first attack is through persecution. Whether it be by hostile Jews, whether it be by the Roman government, there's persecution that came against these churches, and and persecution comes against churches today. Secondly, it was through false doctrine, false belief systems. We saw the prophetess Jezebel in the church in Thyatira. We saw the Nicolaitans and those that taught to the teachings of Balaam, false teachers rising and, and captivating the church. We've also seen, thirdly, sexual immorality is what the church has been seduced to embrace immorality, to go down a path of compromise. But this morning, when we get to the church in Sardis, we get to the fourth attack, which is more subtle, a little bit discreet, not as overt, and the attack is complacency, apathy. I want to paint a picture for you this morning of things that happen across the landscape in America every week. This is a made-up story. Picture in your sanctified imagination this morning. Any town, USA. Doesn't matter where. First Church, USA. It doesn't matter the denomination. It doesn't matter the label. Anywhere in the United States, any church. 30 or 40 years ago, this church was a small band of struggling believers. And they banded together to stand up for God's truth. And they held fast to the gospel of Christ and they held on to the authority of God's word. And they weren't, they weren't mesmerized by all the latest and greatest trends that came through the 80s and 90s with the church growth movement. They didn't care about all these fads. They were just wanting to be salt and light in their community. But about 10 or 12 years ago, a new pastor is called to their church. He's a young, mesmerizing, dynamic personality of a pastor. He tends to be more of a motivational speaker than he is of a pastor. He's got great charisma. And he begins preaching messages, and he doesn't stop preaching from the Bible, but he begins preaching messages about self-esteem, about me and my felt needs. He starts preaching messages that are more watered down that try to get people to come to the church. Messages about me. And some of the senior adults are a little concerned, but they want the young pastor to spread his wings, and so they allow him to preach these messages. Prayer used to be a dynamic part of the church. Prayer meetings on Wednesday nights was the lifeblood of this church, but prayer is not talked about now. And what happens over time is this church emerges into a megachurch. 
It's got a million-dollar budget. It's got million-dollar buildings. And it's got programs for everybody in the family. It's the happening place. It's the place to be. People from all over are flocking to this church to hear this great motivational speaker, to be involved in these programs. It's placarded in all the magazines as the church growth model. It's made the headlines in the denominational newspaper. It has now become a church that's a well-oiled machine. What used to be a spirit-empowered, dynamic band of Bible-believing Christians is now a corporation. Pastor's the CEO. The church members are the shareholders. And in order to keep the shareholders happy, the pastor and staff will do whatever it takes to keep the people coming. It looks more like a shopping mall now than it does a church. Symbols like the cross and other things are taken off the church to not be offensive. Things like repentance and holiness and the blood of Christ and the cross are not preached. And hell is definitely a four-letter word in this church. They do not preach about hell. But yet people are flocking. Thousands of people are coming each week. They start making decisions in the church based upon popularity. Who's popular? Who has position in the community? It's not based upon godly leadership or biblical qualifications. It's if you look the part, if you were attractive, if you were handsome, if you had connections, you were put up in leadership. The children were coming to Sunday school. Instead of being taught the Bible, they were taught veggie tales. Nothing against veggie tales, but that was the primary diet. The youth group, instead of being built on the Word of God, was built upon all these activities to amuse and entertain teenagers. This church had a great reputation. It was the most popular church in town. It was the biggest church in town. It was the most happening church in town. It had the best pastor, the best staff, the best buildings, the best programs, the best everything. Everybody was happy. The bills were being paid, and it was a glorious place to be. But yet, beneath the surface, there was something deeply wrong. This church had been lulled into a complacent mindset to get away from its roots of the gospel, to get away from its roots of the authority of Scripture, to get away from its roots that Jesus Christ is the only way. And so, even though it was the most popular church in town, what more could God want, right? Now, why do I tell you this story this morning? And by the way, I'm not against megachurches. I'm not against church growth. I hope our church grows. But I do not want to have our church grow at the expense of God's word and at the expense of the exclusivity of the gospel, that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. This was Sardis. You will see very briefly and very shortly here in just a moment that the church in Sardis was the popular megachurch happen in place of its day that had been lulled into complacency. Let's read Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, as we hear the words of the living Christ. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you're dead. Wake up. And strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief. And you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you still have a few names in Sardis. People who have not soiled their garments and they will walk with me in white. For they are worthy. 
The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, in a few weeks, we'll get out of this outline of the seven aspects of the letters to the seven churches. But until we get out of that, you know the routine by now. There's seven aspects to the letter. We start with the introductory address. Jesus writes to the angel of the church in Sardis, write, What does history teach us about Sardis, the town? What do we know about this town? It was not a hotbed of persecution. It was not a place of Roman emperor worship to the extreme. It wasn't a place where hostile Jews in a synagogue of Satan were bringing attacks upon the church. As a matter of fact, the evidence shows that the church had made friends with the culture. What was happening was the church was becoming a model of dead, inoffensive Christianity. Sardis was the oldest town in Asia Minor. For 500 years before Christ, it was the most important city in Asia Minor. For 500 years. But in AD 17, an earthquake hit Sardis and destroyed the city. And it was rebuilt. But it was rebuilt at a less of a scale than it was before. It was, it was a shell. It was, it was a relic of what it was before. Sardis was a town that was living in the glory days of the past. It was a shell of what it used to be as a town. The same as the church. The church is a shell of what it used to be, a relic of the good old days. Gold and silver were first discovered in Sardis. It was a town where they first minted coins. It was a rich town. It was a materialistic town. It was a town of luxurious decadence. It was a town where people were fat cats. It was a fat cat city and a fat cat church. It was a complacent town. The chief industry in Sardis, as we've been looking each week, each town had a chief industry. The chief industry in Sardis was wool manufacturing. We'll get to that later. What's the aspect of Christ's appearance? The second thing. Christ always appears to this church, recalling how he revealed himself in chapter 1. He says, The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Without going back and rehashing what this seven spirits of God is, it's not some freaky trinity that's got seven of them. Seven is a perfect number. The seven spirits of God is symbolic and representative of the Holy Spirit. Now, it's very interesting. For a church that's dead and dying and lifeless, What do they need? What we sang about this morning. They need the Holy Spirit to come blow in their midst. They are dead, dry, whittling, wasted away bones in the valley of death. They need the Holy Spirit to come breathe new life into them. They need the invigorating power of the Holy Spirit to come and bring them to life. And Jesus holds the Holy Spirit and he holds the seven stars. Here's the question. Holy Spirit in one hand, seven stars in the other hand. What do the seven stars represent? The church. Here's the question in Sardis. Will Jesus bring his hands together? Will the Holy Spirit empower the church? Will the church allow the Holy Spirit to empower it? And will the church be what God has called it to be? Remember what Paul prayed in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 20 through 21. He said, God is 
able to do far more than we can ask or imagine according to His power that is at work within us. To Him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Power. This is the desperate need of the hour. There are so many churches across our landscape that lack the power of God. And if we're not careful, Emmanuel Baptist Church can go down a path where we take pride in our machinery, we take pride in the things that we can do, and we don't get to the point of desperation when we say, Holy Spirit, we need you to blow in our midst because we are powerless without you. A church needs to have the power of God. Many of you know Charles Spurgeon was the pastor of the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London in the 1800s. And it, as a matter of fact, was a megachurch of its day. He would preach to four to 6,000 people in the Metropolitan Tabernacle. Charles Spurgeon was a large man. He had a large pulpit behind which he preached. And the story goes that there were 15 steps that he had to walk on the way up to the pulpit to preach. And the story goes like this. As he walked up to the pulpit, on each step, he would mutter to himself, I believe in the Holy Spirit. Second step, I believe in the Holy Spirit. After saying that 15 times, guess what? He got in the pulpit and he was fired up. He was ready to preach in the power of the Holy Spirit and to challenge his people in the power of the Holy Spirit. And I wonder, as a church, do we cry out in desperation, I believe in the power of the Holy Spirit. We need the Spirit to blow fires of revival through this church. Now, I would not say that we're the point of being dead like the church in Sardis. But I would say this, if we're going to experience revival, if we're going to experience renewal, if we're going to experience growth, we need the power of the Holy Spirit in our midst. We will not move forward as a church until we've heard from the, word, we've heard from the Lord and He's moved us to where He wants us to be. Let's look at the spiritual evaluation, and it's not a pretty one. What does Jesus say about this church? I know your works... You have the reputation of being alive. They had a name. They had a reputation. Everybody liked the church in Sardis. It was the place to be. It had the buildings. It had the budget. It had the programs. It had the dynamic facade of being a alive, happening, vibrant church. But yet, they'd become almost dead. Their spiritual graveyard. Jesus, with his penetrating eyes like fire, pierces through the facade and sees the, ch- the, ch- the church for what it truly is. They're not being a lampstand. They're not being salt and light. They're dead. Another impressive thing in the town of Sardis was this. If you looked out at the hillside of Sardis, seven miles outside the city, you would see what's called the necropolis. It's basically a fancy name for a graveyard. And it was nicknamed the Necropolis of a Thousand Hills. Because upon this graveyard, you could see literally thousands of graves. It's a huge cemetery. And so for the Sardin Christians, they knew that part of the landscape of their town was to look out and see a reminder of how many people had died on the side of the hill. And Jesus makes the connection and says, just like your town is famous for the hill of a thousand deaths, you are a spiritual graveyard, Sardis. You're about to die. 
What does Jesus say in Matthew 23, 27? Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you're like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. This was Sardis. Images everything. On the outside, they looked like they were the place to be. On the outside, they looked like they had it all together. They were whitewashed, but Jesus says, you have this great reputation of being alive, but in fact, you are dead. And I wonder, not only as churches, but how many individuals do we have here this morning that play a great game at Christianity and say, on the outside, I've got it all together. I'm puffing myself up with pride. I'm playing the part of a very spiritual Christian, but on the inside, you're living a lie. You're being a hypocrite. And Jesus says, you're almost dead. Now, how does a church get this way? How does a church go from being a vibrant, living, active witness for Jesus Christ and slide down into this church that's almost dead, that's on life support? But they think they're alive. Because activity's going on and all this great stuff is happening, how does a church go down this path? There's very many different reasons. And we could spend all day talking about many different reasons. Let me just give you one. This is an opinion from Pastor Sean. Not the gospel, okay? Pragmatism. What is pragmatism? We get the word pragmatic from it. Pragmatism says this, if it works, it's got to be good. As long as it works, as long as it draws a crowd, as long as it keeps people coming, we don't care what happens as long as the people are coming in. It doesn't ask the question, does this glorify God? Is this on God's agenda? Is this part of God's radar screen? It asks the question, whatever it takes to get the people to come in, we will do it because it matters if it works. Now, I'm not going to pick on churches this morning and list names, but there's a church. It's one of the largest Southern Baptist churches in America. It's in Texas. This very morning, they're starting a new sermon series called Larger Than Life. To introduce their sermon series at this megachurch, they're bringing in a guest speaker to come and motivate the congregation. Anybody want to take a guess on who they're bringing in? Just, just guess. Come on. Humor me. <laughs> Charles Stanley? No, not Charles Stanley. Not Rick Warren. Not Joel Osteen. Come on now. You guys know that. Okay. No. The Hulkster. Hulk Hogan. I'm serious. Hulk Hogan is coming into this church to give them a message on living a large life. And they've had commercials on their website about how to, I mean, the Hulkster's doing his Hulkster thing and he's calling the pastor maniac and all this kind of stuff. Next week, we're going to have, I don't even know who the wrestlers are. Somebody give me a wrestling name. The first service I should have gotten. We're going to have a wrestler next week, right? Whatever works. I'm not against Hulk Hogan, but my goodness. Another church in Texas, which will rename Nameless, had a campaign October 31st to December 31st. Whoever brought the most guests to church would win $2,000 towards debt reduction. Also, whoever brought the most guests was put into a drawing for a brand new 2007 Toyota Corolla. So, you guys just bring your friends and we'll give away a free car, right? It doesn't matter if we care about the gospel. It's a matter of getting people in. Now, I'm not opposed to growth. I'm not opposed to megachurches. But pragmatism, whatever works, if it compromises the gospel, if it's glorifying to God, it doesn't matter. It's whatever works. And I believe the church in Sardis was falling prey to this. Listen to the words of rebuke that Jesus gives them. 
Jesus gives them five sharp, quick, abrupt commands to be obeyed quickly. Most of these are in the aorist imperative, which I'm not going to bore you with Greek, but means you need to do it now, and you need to do it fast and with urgency. Some of them are in the present tense, which means you need to continually do these things. I'll I'll explain to you which ones are in present tense and which ones are in aorist tense because uh, it makes a difference. The first one he says is be alert. Your translation might say wake up. In the original language, it says be watchful, be alert, be vigilant. It's in the present tense. Continually be on watch, be on your guard, be looking out for false teachers, be looking out for being lulled into this. Be alert, be watchful. Secondly, strengthen. This is in the aorist imperative. Do it quickly. Strengthen what remains. Notice Jesus says there's something that remains. There's a remnant. There's some small vestige of life. There's some people that are passionate. Strengthen that. Strengthen what remains and is about to die. About to die. But notice what Jesus says. This is a scary verse. I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. They were not mature. They were not complete. doesn't mean we have to be perfect. doesn't mean we have to have all our ducks in a row. doesn't mean we, we've arrived. But Jesus says, your works are not complete in the sight of my God. What works is Jesus talking about? We know in the context of Revelation that each church, Jesus tells them what he's looking for. Love. Love for the gospel, love for each other, faithfulness to the gospel, perseverance, not, not denying his name, holding fast to the gospel, faithfulness. They're not demonstrating these things. And it's so interesting, it's so ironic. What was the church in Sardis concerned with? Approval in the sight of men. They had the reputation of being the live church. But God says, in my sight, You've come up lacking. You've come up incomplete. And that word, Jesus says, I found your works incomplete. That means that Jesus took a penetrating, investigative, scrutinizing look at the church and said, you've come up short. Now, here's where the rubber meets the road. Christ has eyes like fire. He looks at each of our lives. He looks at the church. I wonder what Christ's evaluation would be upon the works I'm not talking about our salvation here. We're saved, we're secure. I'm talking about the evidence, the fruit of what Emmanuel Baptist Church is about when Christ makes his evaluation. Are we concerned with promoting our own agenda? Or are we concerned with what God says? And then he says, remember. Remember what you've received and what you've heard. Keep on remembering what you've received. Remember the gospel. Remember when the church was planted. Remember the message. Remember the truth. Remember what we've taught you. Don't forget it. How easy it is to forget the gospel and be lulled into all these different things that somehow are going to become replacements or substitutes for the truth. And then he says, keep it. Not only remember it, but keep it. Guard it. Hold fast to it. Don't let it out of your sight. Don't flirt with nominalism. Don't be a church in name only. And then he says, repent. There's always the call for repentance in the book of Revelation, which gives us hope. Christ very rarely comes with immediate swift judgment upon a church. He says, repent. He gives them time to repent. And that's in the aorist imperative too, which means do it now. Do it now. Repent of allowing the culture around you to squeeze you into its mold. Now, twice Jesus says, wake up or be watchful. 
If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Jesus will come like a thief. Now, some interpreters think about this as the the second coming. I don't see this as the second coming. Other places in the scripture, Jesus talks about coming like a thief in the night. But this is very specific to the church in Sardis. He's going to come to them like a thief. And if they don't repent, he's going to come to them. The second coming is not based upon any conditions. The second coming is a fixed event. Christ will come back when God has appointed that. So I believe this is Jesus coming and impending judgment upon this church if they don't repent. Why would the imagery of a thief be important to the Sardin Christians? One bit of information I withheld from you about the church in Sardis, about the city of Sardis, the most important thing about the city of Sardis was this, the Acropolis. It was the most prominent thing in the city. It was at the base of a river where there was a moat. On three sides of the Acropolis, there were 1,500-foot perpendicular concrete, not concrete back then, solid rock walls. And on the fourth side... They had to keep guards on watch to be on the lookout for invading armies. But the Sardans thought they were invincible. They're impenetrable. I am, nothing can get past this city. We're prideful. We're arrogant. We've got the solid rock walls. We will never be taken captive. We don't need to be watchful. We don't need to be vigilant. We are invincible. Well, in 549 B.C., the Persian king Cyrus led a sneak attack into the city. One soldier scaled the wall when nobody was watching. As a matter of fact, what happened was he looked up and saw a soldier from the Sardans drop his helmet and realized that that was a way to get in. Snuck up, the whole city was captured because one guy went in. They were captured like a thief. It took the city by surprise. They were unexpected. Nobody knew what was happening and they were conquered. Because a soldier came in and took them by surprise. If that wasn't enough, in 218 B.C. it happened again. It happened twice. And so the Sardin Christians would know what it meant to be a thief coming in the night on a surprise attack. Because their very city had happened to them twice. Their city was built upon this idea of being invincible. And they knew from the history of their city that they had been captured by surprise attack. And Jesus says, if you don't repent, if you're not watchful, if you're not paying attention, if you're not being obedient, I'm going to come in judgment. Now, Jesus can come in judgment to churches. Remember what he said in the Ephesian church, I will remove your lampstand. In this he says, I will come against you if you don't repent. If you don't repent. What are the words of encouragement and exhortation? Notice what Jesus says in verse 4. Yet you still have a few names in Sardis. People who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. Jesus says, there's a few. There's a small group. Probably those senior adults on the back row that are like, something's not right here. We've been here for 40 years, and this new pastor, what's he thinking? What are you talking about? It doesn't necessarily have to be senior adults. It could be young adults, too. There's a small group of people in the church that have not soiled their garments. That's a metaphor for the fact that they have not capitulated. They've not become Christians in name only. They've remained salt. They've remained light. They've kept true to their witness. They haven't given in to this church in name only. Now, that would be very important to a church and to a culture that had wool as their primary industry. Soiled garments, white wool. As a matter of fact, in the town of Sardis, if you had soiled garments, you can be taken off the, the city registry and, and not be a citizen anymore. In the pagan 
religions. You could not even approach a pagan god with soiled garments. And so Jesus is saying that in a town that values white wool, there are many in the church that have soiled their garments, but there's a small remnant, there's a small group that has not done that. They've remained faithful. And notice what Jesus says. It says, They will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. They're worthy to walk with me. Let's break this down a little bit. First of all, they're worthy. Why are they worthy? Are they worthy because of anything in themselves? Did they come to Jesus and said, We're so great. We're so awesome. You're lucky, Jesus, to have us on your team. We are worthy because we bring worth to the table. That's not what he's talking about here. What does Isaiah 64, 6 say? We've all become like one who's unclean. Our deeds, our righteous deeds, are like filthy garments, like polluted garments. The only thing that we have to offer Jesus is polluted garments of sin. We come with sin in our lives. That does not make us worthy. We have nothing to contribute to our salvation. We have nothing that makes us worthy. But notice what, and this was the verse I read at the beginning of the service, Isaiah 61.10, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He's covered me with the robe of righteousness. We've been clothed. If you're in Christ this morning, if you're not in Christ this morning, if you're not a believer, you stand as one who has filthy garments separated from God. And the only way that you can have access to heaven is if you have clean garments, white garments. This is all a metaphor. It's not like we're going to actually, I don't know, we might literally have white garments, but... You cannot get yourself clean. The only way that you can have access to heaven is for Christ to robe you in his righteousness, robe you in white garments. That's what makes you worthy. Notice what Jesus says, they will walk with me. They will walk with me. Enoch walked with God and was no more. Noah walked with God. Abraham walked with God. Moses walked with God. To walk with Jesus means intimate, personal discipleship of following Jesus and being where Jesus is. Of having that intimate, personal relationship of doing life with Jesus. Later on in Revelation chapter 14, it's said of believers, it is they who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. They follow the Lamb wherever they go. The promise to the overcomer. Jesus gives three promises, a threefold promise to the overcomer, which is a little bit different than what we've seen in the past. He gives three. The first one he says, to the one who conquers. Now, let's just review here. What's an overcomer? What's a conqueror? It's one who finishes the race. It's the one who, by God's grace, perseveres to the end. It's the one who doesn't just start the race, but the one who ends. And all true Christians, by God's grace, will be conquerors. He says this, number one, they will be clothed in white. They will be clothed in white. Why is it so important to be clothed in white? We are clothed, as Revelation 7, 13 and 14 says, we've been clothed in white. We've washed our robes in the blood of the Lamb. That doesn't make any sense to me. Why would you wash white clothes in red blood and it would be spotless white? It doesn't make sense. The only way that we can have access into heaven is through the blood of Jesus Christ. And you must trust him for your salvation. You must repent of your sins. He clothes you with white robes and enables you by his blood to enter into heaven. And so this metaphor of being clothed in white is a picture of God granting us access to heaven by clothing us in garments of his righteousness, not our own. But the second thing that Jesus says here is, I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will never blot his name. That never is in an emphatic tense in the Greek, which means I will never ever. 
blot his name out of the book of life. What do we know the book of life is? The book of life is the registry of who are believers and who are not. Isaiah 49, 16, God the Father says this, Behold, I have engraved you in the palm of my hands. Our names, if we're believers, were written in the Lamb's book of life before the foundations of the world by the Lamb that was slain, Revelation 13, 8. Now, this is an emphatic way of Jesus basically saying, you are secure in your salvation. I will never blot you out. You're eternally secure in the palm of my hand. No one can pluck you. No one can snatch you out. Let me remind you Romans 8, 1. Pivotal verse in the Bible. Romans 8, 1 says this, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. If you are in Christ Jesus this morning, if you are a believer, if you've been clothed in His righteousness, if you've truly been saved, there's no condemnation. You cannot be punished. You cannot go to hell. You cannot suffer eternally. You have been declared not guilty by God forever and ever. What's the last thing? And this is an, this is an exciting one. This is something I learned this week. I learn stuff every week, but this was, a, this was a new one to me. I will confess his name before the courts of heaven. Jesus will confess their names before the courts of heaven. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. That word confess is a strong word used in the courts of law. Jesus will publicly declare your name if you are a true believer and grant you access into heaven. It's a public declaration. I don't know when that will happen. I don't know on what day that will happen. I know at some point in the future, Christ will publicly declare you by name and confess you and grant you access into heaven. Remember what Jesus said while he was on earth in Matthew 10, 32 through 33? So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who's in heaven. Whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father in heaven. Here's a key concept for the church in Sardis. What were they most concerned with? The praise of men. Having the praise of men confess their name. Oh, Sardis. That's a great church. Man, if you're not going to Sardis, you don't know what you're missing. That's the greatest church. They've got a great pastor. Have you seen their buildings? They've got great programs. Oh, man, everybody's confessing Sardis across the whole city. It's a great church. It has a great reputation. What's more important? Being confessed by men or having Jesus Christ, the Lord and Savior of your life, confess you before the Father and grant you access into heaven. That's the most important thing. And then Jesus closes with the command to listen. The command to listen. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now there's a message for us today. Twofold message. First is a message to us corporately as Emmanuel Baptist Church. And I have a question for us as a, as a body of believers. Are we a nominal church? Are we a church in name only? A church that appears on the outside to have a reputation of being alive, but if Christ were to pull away the peels like an onion, the layers, are we on spiritual life support system? I think not. I think we're a vibrant and healthy church, but there's always room for improvement. But my fear is, here's my fear. As the world gets more hostile to Christianity, as more Christians, supposed Christians, disobey and live in sin, and we see people all around us doing things that are sinful, there are going to be churches in this very state, 
in this very town who are going to blend in with the culture because it's easier. They're just going to be a church in name only. They're going to be nominal. And it's going to be very tempting for us to look at them and say, they're growing. And as a matter of fact, they might be growing. They might have more people coming to our... Who wants to be part of the church shrinkage movement? I don't want to be part of the church shrinkage movement. But my goodness, if it means compromising the gospel and compromising the truth, let God be the God of increase. Let God be the God who brings the numbers. Let us not capitulate because other churches and other ministries and other people are seemingly growing by leaps and bounds, but there's no, there's no base. There's no solid foundation. But let me ask this question to you as individuals. This is maybe where the rubber meets the road. Stop and think about this for a moment. Do you have the reputation of being alive but are in fact on life support system? Let me put it another way. To everyone around you, you look like you've got it together as a Christian. You put up a good fake. You play the game. You look whitewashed. But you know deep on the inside, you're a sinner. You're a hypocrite. You are living in disobedience. God doesn't want you to stay there. God holds out repentance, and Christ offers grace to free you from that. First point is just admitting. The worst sin, I think, is pride of thinking there's nothing wrong with me, of of, of thinking that I'm invincible like Sardis. And do you have the power of the Holy Spirit in your life? Remember, Jesus says, I hold the Holy Spirit. Are you trying to force things in your life? Are you trying to, to work things out in the flesh? Or are you relying upon the grace that the Holy Spirit gives to live a life that's pleasing to God? We need grace. We get in by grace, but we live the life by grace. And God always offers grace to us, even if we failed. If you're here this morning and you failed multiple times, you're flat on your face, you're on spiritual life support, you're a believer, but you're on spiritual life support, there's always hope of repentance and God's grace of restoring you. And that's the job of the church, to surround you and love you and bring you back into the fold. Let me give you a final challenge. I think the final challenge is what Jesus said back in Matthew five thirteen through 16. This is the word of the Lord Jesus Christ, and I believe we could probably apply this to Sardis. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. Sardis was a church that was salt at first, but it lost its saltiness. When a church loses its witness... When a church loses its flavor, what does Jesus say happens? It's thrown out. The church was once a light, a lampstand burning, but they put a bushel over it. As Emmanuel Baptist Church, may we be a church that is salt and light in our community. And may we as individuals be salt and light. And may it be said of us, no, you don't have the reputation of being alive. You are alive. Christ declares you alive. You are an alive Christian. You're an alive church. You're a spirit-empowered church. You're a church that's on fire for Jesus. You're not almost dead. May that be the prayer that we pray this morning. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads this morning. And as we think about this new year, 
I don't know where you are as you've come into this place this morning. Many of you are in different paths in your spiritual journey. Some of you haven't even started the journey yet. Some of you aren't Christians. Some of you have never repented of your sins and come to faith in Christ alone. That needs to happen before you can even experience what we're talking about here. Repenting of your sins, trusting in Christ alone, coming to Him in faith. The, gospel say, or the Bible says today is the day of salvation. Others of you might be um, lax, lackluster in your, in your walk. You're kind of struggling. I would be remiss this morning if I did not give us an opportunity to respond, to engage, to meditate, and to think about what God is saying to us. Sometimes when we come to church, we hear a message, we don't have time to digest it. We leave, we go out to the parking lot, we eat, we forget. I want to give us some time this morning, carve out some time for us to digest what's been said this morning. As you're praying, I'm going to be playing a song over the, the speakers. And the words go like this. Let me be open. Let me be humble. Let me find the joy of my salvation in your cross. Let me be broken whenever I stumble. Let me remember the great mercy of my God. As we play this music, you can kneel where you're at and pray. If you want to come to the altar and pray and kneel this morning, if you want to come take my hand and say, Pastor Sean, I don't understand what you're talking about, but I want to know what it means to be a Christian, we want to give you opportunity to respond this morning in whatever way God has called you to do that. So as we start the music and we pray and we listen and we meditate and we reflect, let this song be the prayer of our church and the prayer of our lives. Well, Father, we just come before you this morning. and That's our prayer, that we would be open, that we would be humble, and that we would be broken before you. Lord Jesus, we need your grace. The Bible says when we are weak, then you're strong, your grace is sufficient. And Lord, I just feel led right now that there's probably some people in this room that are struggling with sins that they feel overwhelmed by. Things that they seem are insurmountable. May you grant grace to individuals this morning that need the hand of God in their lives. Lord, let us leave ministered to by your Holy Spirit that we would know that you are a God of love, a God of grace, a God of mercy, and that you forgive. And there's great power in forgiveness. There's great power in brokenness. When we do stumble, help us to be quick to repent. Jesus, we love you, and we thank you that you're a God who never leaves or forsakes us. Lord, we just love you, and we praise you, and we, words can't express who you are to us. May it be said of us that we are a church that's alive. That we're people that are alive. Not because of anything good in ourselves, but simply because your power is at work within us. And your grace is powerful. Thank you, Jesus, for your cross. Thank you for your resurrection. Thank you for your love. You are an amazing God. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.